we are ditching a century of centralization. We are calling a halt to the over-centralization of power at the center that has brought us conservative sleaze and conservative scandal. And we're ending the long era of the man in Whitehall somehow knowing best. That was the former Prime Minister Gordon Brown presenting his big report this week about decentralising power in this country. But what would it really take to level up the United Kingdom? This is the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. Hello there, welcome to this week's episode of the Manchester Weekly from the Mill. With me, Daryl Morris and Yoshi Herman, the editor of the Mill. Hello there, Yoshi. Hey, how's it going? Uh, very well, we're both very wintry today. It's quite, it is cold. But yeah. we've got we've gone sort of full winter jumper vibes. Why we? is it cold in the studio? Who who, who pays the heating bills? It is a bit Audio always. Nobody. That's the that's the point. Our friends Audio always. Your jumper is um, is much more Christmassy. Borderline Christmas jumper. Is that a Christmas jumper you've got on? I think it's not a Christmas jumper because actually none of the design motifs, as it were, on this jumper are festive. There no. aren't any reindeers. There aren't any Christmas trees. It's sort of patterns. And when my sister gave it to me last year, she said. It's not a Christmas jumper. It's just a, well, you know, it's a winter jumper, obviously, because it's very, very warm. It's from the Isle of... What's the isle that we have is known to be really windy? It's the Isle of Man. They're they're all a bit windy, aren't they, out there? Yeah. One of those islands is very windy, and they make these kind of jumpers that basically don't let the the wind in. You can see... Oh, yeah. It's sort of attached. Yeah, they're very tight around the Very tight. Anyway, so it's not a Christmas jumper. It's just a warm jumper, and I'll be wearing it after Christmas. It's sort of of like the diehard of jumpers, and it it sort of could be a Christmas jumper, but there's a big debate about whether it really is or not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll wear it around in January, and then we'll find out. Okay. (laughs) See if anybody points at why you're still wearing a Christmas jumper in January, and then you'll know. Um, okay, lots to get our teeth into again this week as usual. We're going to talk a little bit about Night and Day Cafe. There's been an update on that. Uh, we'll get to a story about Strange Ways Prison, which has sparked my interest, and Jack Dolhanty as well, who's been following that. Let's start, though, as promised, with the big announcements from Labour this week. Keir Starmer and Gordon Brown picked Yorkshire as the place they launched their big plans for devolution. The possibility of scrapping the House of Lords is the thing that sort of got a lot of the headlines. You might have seen that in the news this week. But there's lots of stuff in there about sort of devolution generally, Yoshi. You've been reading it and following it. You've read the report, haven't you? All 150 pages of it, blow by blow. What did it teach you? Okay, first of all, I haven't read that. <laughs> I think, by the way, just a story on that, by the way. Yeah. Uh, when when Gordon Brown sort of initially filed his draft, somebody at the Labour Party went, oh, it's a bit long. And Gordon Brown's people went back to them and said, it's fine, It'll, it's, it's not been revised yet. We're gonna... When it came back, it was longer, than, <laughs> <laughs> which is very Gordon Brown, I think. That's very Gordon Brown, and, and the presentation of it was very Gordon mm. Brown as well. He was sort of like, you know, he got up, he mispronounced Tracy Braben's name. He sort of talked a lot in this very sort of old style Gordon Brown way, the, the better future for Britain, that we're all sort of marching towards build a better... It was, it was very late New Labour sort of abstractions and stuff. The report itself, which is not just something that Gordon Brown's written, it was done by a... Uh, what is it called? Is it a committee or it's a commission? I think. Yeah, maybe a commission. commission yeah. Certainly it was a bunch of people and Gordon Brown got together. What this report is about, and it's not a Labour Party manifesto. De- they haven't committed to any of it, but clearly the fact that Sir Keir Starmer was there, the party leader, shows that there's a, there's a level of buy-in from the party into, into these recommendations. But what it's really about is about the concentration of power in this country in Westminster and how the Labour Party, or at least Gordon Brown and the group of people he did this with, have come to the conclusion, it seems, that the thing holding us back 
the problem in our democracy and also in our economy is that we're much too centralised. So there's a quote from the report that says, the continuing over-concentration of power in Westminster and Whitehall is undermining our ability to deliver growth and prosperity for the whole country. And there was this other bit that really struck out to me when I was listening to it on YouTube, where they referred to the deadening, controlling hand of central government, which, as we know, is stifling initiative and development throughout the country. I mean, that was kind of striking to me for a few different reasons. Firstly, because it's it's a very strong hypothesis for them to come to. And, and that, you know, a lot of people who I've spoken to really agree that this is the big problem of the British economy. But secondly, because I don't associate new Labour, led by Gordon Brown, when he was Chancellor, led by him when he was Prime Minister. I don't remember that government, that administration, as a movement that was about decentralizing power in, 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 in meaningful ways. They did do some devolution stuff, but, but, but really, you know, that was a... You know, we are a very centralised country, and they they governed that country for what was it, thirteen years or something. And certainly under Blair's era, arguably the opposite, right? A lot of sort of Blairism was about about bringing or Blair's time in government was about bringing power into Westminster and into one room in Downing Street, by the sounds of things. Yeah, I spoke to someone earlier who who's been involved in this kind of policy stuff for ages, and who basically described Gordon Brown as a sort of a, a traditional machine politician, someone who believes in the power of the state and who hoards control and, and who believes that's the right way to run run the country. They did also say, look, Labour did try to do some devolution stuff. They tried this Northwest Assembly thing, which went down mm. to a referendum. They, mm. they, they did have these ideas about a structure of government below the below the national government. So anyway, that was one of the reasons it struck me, because it, because it was Gordon Brown delivering it. Mm. And, and I think that shows that people like Gordon Brown have been on a bit of a, a journey about mm. what's really going on. I think another thing that struck me when I was reading it was that they are really leaning into this analysis of the country as incredibly centralised and where a lot of people who don't live in the southeast are living much, much lower qualities of lives than they should be, right? Which which we've talked about on here before. But again, it's like a big commission um, commissioned by the Labour Party coming coming to that conclusion. So they talked about uh, speaking to a um, an internationally recognised uh, professor called Philip McCann who, who had told them that half the UK population live in areas no better off than the poorer parts of the former East Germany, poorer than parts of Central and Eastern Europe, right? So, so that's what that's where they identified the problem. Now, as you said, one of the big things that, that this this report recommended was about the House of Lords because it was supposed to be about the constitutional settlement of the UK. So part of it was about abolishing the House of Lords and replacing it with a, a chamber of the of the nations and the regions, right? That got most of the coverage. But I think given our listenership and people up here caring about how, you know, regional economic and closing these disparities. I think the bit that's most interesting to to us today is this thing of empowering, I'm going to quote again, empowering mayors, combined authorities and local government in new economic partnerships and creating uh, and supporting an environment for dynamic new clusters in the digital, medical, environmental and creative industries in a new pro-growth strategy. What they're saying here is, look, we, we are constrained, or, or I guess the subtext that I read into this is we are going to be constrained by what we can spend and what we can tax. But something that we can do that's really radical is we can hand power back to places and, and let decisions be made about about buses and the decisions be made about hospitals and about and, and about um, you know even job centres. They refer to job centres being localised, having those decisions be made more locally. Mm, very interesting. In that sense, quite politically clever, isn't it? And also the other thing that struck me as well was this sort of post Brexit Britain. What's the offer to those? 
parts of Greater Manchester that voted to leave the European Union, who were annoyed about you know things, who felt like things weren't really working for them very well, and lashed out at Westminster in that kind of a way. What, what, what's, what's your answer, Labour, to those people? It's kind of this, isn't it? Yeah, so there was something that Keir Starmer said that I don't, I can't still work out in my head if it's really tenuous or if it's kind of actually correct. Maybe it's both. He basically said part of the reason people voted for Brexit was because they wanted control, not just over our borders and immigration, but also they wanted a feeling of control by decisions being made locally, knowing the people making the decisions. Mm. And, you know, what they're basically saying there is if people had local politicians who could actually, um, you know, they had actual funding, they had actual powers, they could do a lot more people would feel less like decisions are being made by sort of remote bureaucracies hundreds of miles away in London mm. and, you know, obviously in the EU as well. Mm-hmm. I think that's a relatively interesting argument. I don't know if you spoke to the average Brexit voter whether, like, they would talk about it in terms of localism versus national centralization, But certainly the feeling that people's communities have been getting worse, living standards haven't been improving, and that the people who they elect locally or the people who they see locally don't have any real power over it. I think there is something to that, isn't there? Definitely. I'm reminded of a, a passage from Jason Cowley's book. And uh, he, he talks about, I think actually it was his aunt, and she was campaigning to try to keep her local GP open. Mm. And if she didn't, she'd have, she'd have you know two buses to get to the next one. And that decision was, you know, despite the local MP, despite the local area, despite the despite her campaigning for it, it was a decision that was taken by a company in America. There's a lot in there, but that just that sort of general sense. He made that connection to Brexit. You know, the general sense was that people just didn't feel like they had power over their lives yeah. or autonomy over the, the decisions that were being made in right in front of them i think i think whether that's true or not Mm. is is in a sense not necessarily the point is it it's what are our politicians doing to answer those big questions and how can they come to the table and say here's what we're going to do to make to fix the problems that brexit were were about does that make sense but also it is true because we are one of the most centralized economies and bureaucracies in sort of the the developed world Mm. so if people have the sense that decisions are being taken by people who don't understand their community they are correct Mm. about that Mm. people taking decisions are largely ministers and civil servants who have very very little day-to-day experience of the different communities Mm. so no, I think I think people probably are right about that. Where, how big a part of the Brexit referendum mm. that actually was, I, I, that that's something I don't know. I think the big question coming out of this um, Gordon Brown report and and I mean, what, what, okay, there are a couple of questions. One is is Labour actually going to adopt this as one of the main bits of its program? Because mm. as you know, like governments only get a few big things done, don't they? Mm. And if Labour to win the next election, would they make this not just a House of Lords bit, but actually handing over power to local communities? Um, would they actually make this a big priority? Because if they don't make it a priority, it just won't happen. Mm. I think there's a big thing about you know Keir Starmer's Labour Party have waited 15 years for power and then they get in and hand it to somebody else. Yeah, you know there's that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean they absolutely should hand it to, <laughs> to somebody else, but whether they will. I think the second thing is, I've spoken to people who really feel that these proposals are sort of promising, but they don't contain the big bit that's required. I mean, when we talk to Diane Coyle on this podcast. When I speak to experts now, the thing that they kind of all agree on, anyone who really believes in this, like closing the regional gap agenda, what they all agree on is that a very, very large tax and transfer moment will have to happen. Mm. There will need to be very large investments of taxpayer money in large parts of the country that have had a lack of investment. It'll have to go into greater spending on health 
greater spending on education, skills so that people can get a broader range of higher paying jobs um, and, and transport. So things like Northern Powerhouse Rail. And that if we don't have that kind of massive moment of investment, much, much bigger than the Tories have tried with, the, with, with their levelling up pots and, 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 and that kind of thing that we won't get a meaningful change here. So so the argument, I think, to try and pull this all together, the argument that people like Gordon Brown, I think, are trying to make is there's a massive untapped potential in the, in the British economy and in, and in the country because loads and loads of people can't access the jobs and the education that they deserve and can't have, the, the, therefore, the lives that they, that they could be having. And I think what, what the experts in this are saying okay, is, OK, sure, if you want to do that, yes, you have to hand over more power to local areas, but you also have to commit to a really big spending programme of something like the ambition of, of the reunification of Germany. Like you're talking like, I th- I've seen someone talking about 10 billion a year, I've talking about someone talking about 12 billion a year, but a genuine investment that happens over a, you know an entire decade, you know, not just a few years, but like you would need a government to get in, you'd need them to, 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 to put themselves into the, to really prioritise this and they would need to go on properly. That is, that is what experts think. If you made those kind of investments, because a lot of the reasons people can't get jobs is because of the poor health. A lot of the reasons that people can't get jobs is because of the poor transport, etc., etc. So it all kind of links together. And the experts I've spoken to have said, look, you know, this direction of travel for Labour, if, if Labour were in, in power, would be really good. But the big things required is a thing that involves a lot of money and a lot of patience. And I, I don't think, I, I don't know, the thing that struck me, or the final thing that struck me, was as soon as Starmer and Brown had finished speaking, the first two questions from journalists, TV journalists, were, what in this report could help people on the first day you get into power? You know, mm. it's just like, and in, on the, in one sense, like, that's an understandable question. People are really struggling at the moment. But, like, when is this country ever going to move from short-termism mm. to long-termism? Mm. When are we ever going to get to the point where it's like, well, actually... The reason people are, are, in, are in terrible poverty when they don't need to be, or a lot of people are, is because this economy is badly set up for them mm. and because large parts of the, the country can't access good jobs and good education. And if you don't fix the long-term stuff, you're always going to have every year going to be saying, well, people are really, really struggling. People are really, Well, you know, I, I think Keir Starmer kind of avoided it and avoided it and then he eventually took that question on and I thought that was interesting. Actually, maybe we can play that tape. Whenever any politician sets out an answer to the underlying issue, the medium and long term, every journalist says, but I want an answer to what's going to happen in the next few weeks. And we go on and on and on. We've been doing this for 12 years. What are you going to do about the NHS winter crisis? Uh, well, it, we need more people in the NHS. Don't want that answer. It'll take too long. Tell me what you're going to do this winter. And then we go on, spin forward 12 months. Next question, what are you going to do about the NHS? We need more people. Don't want that answer. That's medium term. What are you going to do this winter? Same on energy. What are you going to do on energy? We need new renewables. Don't want that answer. It takes too long. What are you going to do this winter? Same on what are you going to do about the economy? Uh, we've got to fundamentally change it to make sure it works for everyone. Don't want that answer. Tell me what we can do this winter. We will go on with this sticking plaster approach forever. Um, we've been doing it for 12 years. It's one of the reasons we haven't got anywhere. Keir Starmer speaking at the launch of that commission from Gordon Brown. Um, OK, just I'm going to give my what must be 800th plug uh, to go and listen back to that Diane Coyle episode because it was really, really good. You'll find it a little bit further down your podcast feed. So let's move on to one of the region's most prestigious schools, Yoshi, that stands accused of failing to protect its students and allowing racism and sexism to flourish. Where are we talking about here? We're talking about Bacob and Rottenstall Grammar School. This school has 
a really, really high reputation. If you look at how many students go to Oxford and Cambridge from schools across the Northwest, this school sends like one of the highest numbers when I, when I did the list a couple of years ago. It's known as a very prestigious state school. It's one of the only grammar schools in Lancashire. It's like if you ask parents in North Manchester or in Lancashire like what the best schools are, I think this would often get mentioned, right? Mm. And out of the blue this year, they earlier this year, they had a shockingly bad Ofsted report at this school. The, I mean, I'm going to read a few quotes from it, but like it's it's kind of almost, it's barely believable, some of the, some of the indictment that, that, that comes down in this Ofsted report. The, the, the inspectors found, quote, incidents of harmful sexual behaviour, close quote, that had gone unchallenged. The school had a, open quotes, unsafe and dismissive culture in which racism, homophobia, misogyny appeared to be accepted, close quotes. And things had got so bad at the school, according to this report, that many of the school students had, open quote, lost confidence in the ability of leaders and staff to protect them from harm, close quote. So like, you know, I mean, I mean, really, really shockingly bad findings from this report. Molly spent weeks, actually more, I think around a couple of months, trying to speak to teachers, ex-teachers, students, parents, and she went to the school a few times, she spoke to people. And what she was really trying to build up was like, what justified this report and how has the school responded? Mm-hmm. And I think people, you know, I, people can go and read the, 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 read the, the piece that Molly wrote this weekend on the mill. It was a really, really interesting in-depth piece. And she does caveat it by saying... It's difficult to report on schools because on the one hand, the school won't talk about specifics because of, you know, privacy concerns, totally legitimate reasons. The other problem is that you are relying sometimes on teenagers to tell you things. You know, you're relying on people who are 16, 17, 18 to tell you some of the information. So obviously you double check it and you fact check it and that kind of thing. But you're always a little bit murky with schools. I've always found that when I've written about schools. Mm. And I think that she she puts that caveat in, but what her piece finds is that this school ha- is in deep crisis. It's had these very serious allegations leveled against them. Some students and parents think, yep, the, you know, the, I'm not that surprised by these because I've seen harmful incidents. Other students and parents say, this is a really lovely school. And, you know, I, there was one uh, sixth former, as you mentioned, who said her teachers are, or maybe it's his teachers, um, are some of the most kind-hearted people I've ever met. Another sixth former denied that there was a racist culture in the school, describing his friendship group as a mix of white British and Asian boys. And, and, and this person said, we personally don't see any racial discrimination within the school. So, and, and the school itself told us, the health and safety of our students is our top priority and underlines why we've been so quick to enact the action plan following the Ofsted inspection earlier this summer, against which we're making good progress. So there's, you can find all of this in this piece, but it's very striking to see a school that was rated outstanding and that was is regarded as very prestigious and outstanding, having really serious problems flagged, admittedly by an inspection that, as you know, like, like they, they normally take a couple of days. So it's just... Mm. Um, I, I found it one of the more interesting pieces that we've published this year. I also heard the school also went on to say that they take strong action against these cases when required and they make no apologies for adopting a very clear approach when it comes to discipline and behaviour, particularly in light of the Ofsted report, they say. Um, OK, uh, still to come on this episode, we're going to uh, consider the fortunes of two of Manchester's great institutions, really. Night and Day Cafe, that of course we've been keeping an eye on, and Strange Ways Prison as well. That'll be really interesting. Firstly, Yoshi, last week, Jack gave a nod for uh, a DJ gig that was happening the other weekend. <laughs> Andy Burnham and Steve Rotherham, who's of course his counterpart over in uh, Merseyside. And, and also, and I didn't realise, but Angela Rayner was there as well, uh, Ashton MP. And there was a DJ gig Y. 
so this was a DJ gig to raise money for the mayor's charity, which um, puts a lot of money into homelessness support in Greater Manchester. So very, very good cause. If listeners have a, have a spare quid or two, I think donating to the mayor's charity is a great thing to do. So we don't want to kind of uh, demean the, 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 the reason for, the, for them doing this DJ battle. But they did this DJ battle. Jack, Jack went along. And I have to say his... Um, text to our group chat that night about what he was encountering, what he was watching <laughs> are quite funny. And I think Sophie um, included them in her editor's edition on The Mill yesterday, which is a members-only edition, but you, you're going to break the pay- paywall to read some of them out. These were the Jack's text to your group chat. 8.19pm. Burnham just played Rock and Roll Star by Oasis. That's it. They didn't even mix anything. <laughs> Rother- Rotherham's just got someone to show him how to press play on the song. 8.21pm. <laughs> accompanied by a photo of a, a cavernous but mostly empty room at Mayfield Depot. Why would they book a venue this big? 8.52pm. After I asked him to summarise the vibe. Imagine being at a family gathering and most of the guests are gone and you're stuck with two uncles who have commandeered the music and are just playing their favourite songs and exclaiming, this is proper music <laughs> and won't let you leave until you listen to the next one. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this I think is my favourite bit of the night. 9.35pm. Burnham just now. So there was a by-election in Chester last night and I think this next song sums up how it went for the Tories. He meant to play Tragedy by Steps, but somehow played Set You Free by Entrance. So it made no sense, and everyone looked confused. <laughs> 9.50pm. Burnham has apologised for not getting the joke right the first time. Steps are now playing. <laughs> so good. Yeah, we can play a little clip of that now. Yeah. Are we going to have a good night or what? I think we are. Most people having a good time at that, uh, that DJ gig. And for a good cause, importantly, right? Definitely. Go and donate to the mayor's charity. Good stuff. All right. Let's move on to some quick hits then. Some of the bits and bobs you might have missed. Night and Day Cafe, of course, we're still following very closely the fortunes of this great Manchester venue. They're trying to fight off a noise abatement notice at the moment. The Music Venue Trust have waded into the argument this week, haven't they, Yoshi? What's been going on here? Yeah, so we had a little uh, item on this um, in the newsletter. The Music Venue Trust have said, we have a premises that can't be occupied. We have a venue that can't be lost. They are calling on the council to purchase this flat from which the complaints have come, um, the noise complaints. And they've called it a planning failure, and they've said, I'm afraid the logical conclusion is the city council needs to step in. That's what they told um, you and yours on on Radio 4. Okay, interesting. Uh, We'll keep an eye on that as well, and we'll get a result on that, I assume, at some point soon. This story I find really interesting, because um, the Strangeways Tower has been a a fixture uh, on a certain part of Manchester skyline for very long time for decades like a bit of a sort of location pin marking the location of some of the country's most notorious prisoners the scene of some riots in the last few days we've learned that manchester city council has approached the ministry of justice asking the government to relocate strange ways it's now called uh, his majesty's prison manchester of course what's going on here yoshi well, yeah, they want to... I'm not a huge, huge expert on this because Jack's been doing it, but, yeah, the council wants to relocate it and the Ministry of Justice is saying no. Hmm. And we've reported on how bad things can be inside what used to be called strange ways. And now there seems to be this real effort on the part of the city to redevelop that area because it's prime city. I mean, it probably used to didn't... didn't wasn't probably considered prime 
you know, mm. uh, real estate 20 years ago, was it? Mm. But now if you sort of, it's so close to the city centre. I mean, it is in the city centre. You've got the Green Quarter there as well. Yeah. Lots they, of kind of flats. Exactly. And it's also, it's also kind of links us to the counterfeit alley conversation because that was there as well. That's part of the same region, yeah. the same bit that he didn't want to read about. Yeah. So to read between the lines, there's clearly an effort to say, look, this is going to be our, one of our next big regeneration areas. There was this rumour and, you know, we, we, it's not something we can, we've confirmed or anything, but that the Abu Dhabi United group might be interested in the area and and that kind of thing. They so, own City and have they've regenerated the, the area around Mount City Square, haven't they? Exactly. So there's an ongoing story about that bit of town, which I think we should probably come back to. Okay, uh, we will. Uh, and also this week, BBC Radio 3 have announced that they are moving some programmes to here, where we currently are right now, where you and I sit. Some of Radio 3 is going to come from Media City. Yeah, so I think some of, some of it already does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've interviewed a, a Radio 3 host um, who, who's based here and stuff, Elizabeth Alker. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, there's already some of it here, and they, they want to bring more. They want more programmes um, coming to Salford. In fact, I think they've, they've decided that will definitely happen. As a result, by 2024-25, they're going to have 50% of production hours done from, done from um, Salford. They're saying that this is a, a big part of their making sure that their you know, content represents the country and that kind of thing. Does this link us in any way to the English National Opera story, do you think? You know, culture moving to Manchester? Well, I think yeah, any way. any link we can find. <laughs> I thought I'd help you out there. I'd hand you that one. Yeah, look, I mean, look, I think the fact that Britain's leading classical music station will be half operating from Greater Manchester is, is strengthens the argument for having more classical music up here, including... Including the English National Opera, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, everything does, though, for you, doesn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> bit, uh, bit tenuous, for sure. <laughs> um, also this week, just finally, Kate Green, uh, who is a former MP for Stretford and Ernston, she has been confirmed this week as the Deputy Mayor. Yeah, so she's going to be the Deputy Mayor for um, Police, Crime, Criminal Justice and Fire. <laughs> I love that it's just fire, you know, <laughs> it's, it's not, not even firefighting or whatever. So she is, um, as you say, a former MP... And she's now been confirmed. So Burnham, Andy Burnham nominated her to this role and then she had to be confirmed by a committee. That's now been done. She's going to start in early January. And she's quite interesting. It's a, the, the panel who confirmed her kind of looked into her experience or at least, you know, summarily looked over her experience. So they, they noted that she's been a member of the Justice Select Committee in Westminster. She was the chair of the all-party group and women in the penal system. So she's got some bits of her, her experience relating to, to this criminal justice stuff. She's replacing um, Beverly Hughes, who's, who's stepping down. And there'll be a by-election there at some point. It's going to be soon, isn't it? It's going to be... It'll be the 15th of December, uh, that, that by-election, which is perilously close to Christmas, isn't it, really, uh, for being bothered to get involved in a by-election is concerned. Uh, but it's uh, the, the Labour Party obviously have a pretty solid majority, 16,000 for Kate Green, and they'll be looking to replicate, I guess, what they did in Chester and capitalising on the current political climate there. I yeah, I, I, I do think it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's clearly a Labour win, and, and Trafford is becoming more and more Labour. But it's interesting that Andrew Weston, who's the leader of Trafford Council, is now going to be the MP mm. because... I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but you see various efforts by or or plans by council leaders in Greater Manchester to become MPs or, you know, this person's eyeing up this seat. You hear it a lot. And it's like something that tells me something about what running councils is like now. You know, you get less and less money every year. You've got these huge shortfalls. You're constantly having to sack people. Mm. It's just running local authorities when they've just been completely scaled back is, is, is such a 
thankless, effortless task that I think you'll see more and more of this kind of thing of like, you know, young politicians who are considered to be talented and good. I've never met Andrew Weston, but, you know, mm. he's got a good reputation, but he's, you know, he, he's going to be an MP, presumably means he's going to have to step down from, from leading the council. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you, I think you'll see more of that. And then and then it leaves the, the councils in 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 the hands of, you know, other people, hopefully good people, but still, it's an interesting trend, isn't it? Yeah, OK, we'll return to Stratford and Ermston to, uh, to have a look at how that by-election plays out. What's going on in the Mill newsroom then? Yoshi, take us in there, my friend, and uh, what you're working on. Yeah, we're working on an interesting piece um, coming out this weekend, essay about some of this Gordon Brown devolution stuff, mm-hmm. which will, I think, get, some of the thoughts that we've been having today, we'll put them in a, in a more coherent form. <laughs> um, and we've got our um, talking of the, of the Thursday the 15th, as we just did with the by-election, Got our Christmas drinks uh, next Thursday. If any listeners would like to pop along to our Christmas drinks, it's mainly mill staff, mill writers, some mill members. But I think, given that we've got um, some loyal listeners, it would be lovely to have a couple of podcast-specific listeners come along. So if you'd like to come along to our Christmas drinks on Thursday night next week, 15th, mm-hmm. drop me an email. It's yoshi, J-O-S-H-I, at manchestermill.co.uk. And um, I'll let you know the details because it'd be nice for both of us because you're going to be there. I'm going to be there. Yeah, it'd be nice to uh, to meet you. So come and say hi and yeah. uh, let us know who you are six on the chat. To, six to eight. I'll send you the details if you email me. Excellent. Um, okay. And we also give some nods and recommendations for things to do around Greater Manchester. So what else is going on? Well, I am going to be away this weekend because ah. I'm going to Bavaria with my mum because mm. she's from Bavaria and she's going to meet her mum. So it's going to be a whole trip. Oh, wow. Yeah. For Has the first time? She hasn't seen her mum for 15 years. Goodness me. Wow. Yeah, so, so that's going to be quite a big emotional thing. That's what I'm doing. But something I recommend that people can do in Greater Manchester is um, Handel's Messiah, which I like to go every every Christmas. It's a beautiful piece of music that's very um, festive. It's a lovely thing to go to at this time of year. There's a big performance of Handel's Messiah on Saturday at 7.30 at the Cathedral. And that's a joint production between the Cathedral Choir and Manchester Baroque, who we've talked about before. Mm-hmm. And they do they play on like instruments that are either from the time or they're like designed to be from the time. So it sounds a little bit different to regular music. It's still um it'll still sound like Handel's Messiah that you've heard before if you've heard it before, but it's it's got a slightly different um vibe to it when you're when you're when you're dealing with uh, Manchester Baroque. So really recommend that. And it's raising money for the mayor's charity again. Another mention of the mayor's charity. <laughs> so um, they haven't sponsored this week's episode. <laughs> no, they haven't. Although if they want to, yeah, they're very welcome. Although it's charities, they should. Yeah. yeah but anyway, they basically have sponsored it in terms of the amount of coverage you've given them. It's, it's mental. Um, so that is it looks really really good. Seven thirty at the cathedral on Saturday. Excellent. A little bit more mainstream. Um, our Blossoms are on in Manchester uh, this weekend, uh, which will be a lot of fun. Also, uh, the big Bolton Carol concert is taking place this weekend as well. This is again kind of close my heart Bolton Wanderers are having a massive carol concert in their stadium on the it's actually Monday uh, the 12th of December in partnership with Bolton Council and the University of Bolton mm. uh, they're raising money for Bolton Wanderers sort of charities and connected charities as well mm. and they're trying to break the Guinness World Record for the largest group of carol singers ever it was set in Nigeria actually in oh. 2014 at uh, 25,000 so they can and I think they've got I think they've I think they've got you know a good number of people going but do you even get 25,000 along to your guest <laughs> no we don't so there's going to be some people who aren't Bolton fans who are going to have to go oh right <laughs> the stadium is around 28,000 capacity so it will be It'll wow. be, it is very ambitious. I actually like that. I'm not sure it'll happen, but give it a go. Hey, why yeah. not? Give they could go. sponsor us. Bolton could sponsor us. Guys, much. if you want to sponsor the podcast, we, we've got the kind of audience size now where we can drive a lot of value for you. <laughs> exactly. So, Bolton, Wanderers, 
Come along. Exactly. Uh, Monday the 12th at the stadium. Uh, you can sign up on their website, bwfc.co.uk. Uh, that's it from us for this week. Thank you for being here. Thank you as well for joining up to the mill if you have recently. Uh, Manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to subscribe to some brilliant quality journalism in your inbox. And if you get an annual membership before Thursday in the next week, effectively, mm-hmm. you'll get a free copy of a book that has a mill story in it. North Country, a new book by Saraband. It's got lovely writing from the past, from the present. It's got the it's got the Brontes. It's got Danny Cole. <laughs> it's got the Brontes, yeah. Danny Cole, and everything in between. Lovely. Does that make sense? <laughs> this is a lot of things. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Manchestermill.co.uk is where you go to get the mill in your inbox and and the books to get that book. And the book. I'll be in the office next Thursday sending out books. Lovely. Excellent. Uh, thank you for being with us. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast as well. You'll get us in your feed every Thursday. And leave us a review. Please do. I keep on cutting in, but we love the reviews and um and and we've seen another podcast we're not going to mention them by name who have got a lot of reviews and we're jealous we want more reviews that is true so if you if you're listening on apple review us on there if you're listening on spotify mm-hmm. leave a spotify leave them everywhere copy and paste it to all platforms even if you've got an iphone you can still leave a spotify review you can there's no excuse really so actually if you've got an iphone leave both exactly it's what copy and paste was invented for yeah. uh for now yoshi thank you thanks very much 